My name is uh, Jonathan Cruz. I'm the pastor at down the street at Community Presbyterian Church. I send greetings from that congregation, and it's good to see all of you. I look around, and I see uh, a lot of faces I recognize, but n names maybe that I don't remember, so forgive me if uh, when we talk afterwards if I have to ask for your name again, but I'm grateful to be back in the pulpit here and for uh, you lending your pastor to preach for us tonight. We are in a very familiar text, so I'd invite you to turn there, even if you think you know it by heart, even if you do know it by heart, um, which I hope many of you do. It's Romans 8, verse 28, and um, I hope by God's grace we can uh, sort of take a, a deep dive and, and dissect this verse that is very familiar and find ever new truths for us. Romans 8, verse 28, and uh, before we read... Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your gospel. We thank you for the gift of uh, Christ who clings to us and who never lets us go. And uh, for the fact that um, he is with us even tonight by his spirit and word, uh, we want to hear from him this evening. And so we ask that. Uh, even through the words of a weak uh, preacher, uh, that Christ would be proclaimed and even that Christ himself would be heard and that we would be changed. All for his glory's sake we ask. Amen. Romans chapter 8 and verse uh, 28. Actually, we have time. So let's start at verse 18 for context. I don't want you guys getting out too early. Um, I'll hear it from Neil if I don't preach long enough. So, because uh, I hear it from my people when he preaches too long. So, uh, verse 18 sets the context well, and we'll read uh, to verse 28. Uh, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The grass withers and the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord, and it stands forever. In the uh, film, The Princess Bride, 
Inigo Montoya looks over at his boss, Vizzini, after he continues to claim that everything is inconceivable. And he finally makes the remark, uh, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And I've wondered if um, that phrase there is an appropriate response to uh, Romans 28, Romans 8, 28, for many people. You keep using that verse. I, I don't think it means what you think it means. Romans 8, 28 is easily, I don't think we need studies on this. This is just my pastoral intuition. Easily, the top five most quoted verse, uh, one of the top five most quoted verses of all scripture, most loved verses of all scripture, and for good reason, for good reason. Uh, but when we're overly familiar with something, we can start to forget its significance. Uh, we can uh, start to forget what it's really all about. Certain truths can be lost on us, and then even more seriously, certain truths can be warped by us. Uh, often what, what people mean when they share this verse or what they hear when other people share it to them is something like this. Everything's going to turn out just the way I want. Everything's going to turn out just the way I want. Or, or give it a few weeks. We know you're in a rough spot right now. Give it a few weeks, a few months, and you're going to see how your life situation has turned around and you'll be happier. Uh, it ends up being used in a way by Christians that really isn't any different uh, than an unbeliever patting somebody on the back in the face of grief or tragedy or loss and saying, they're there, it will all work out, or it's all for the best. Well, what basis has an unbeliever for making such a claim? How do they know it will all work out? How could they possibly say that this trial I'm going through, this tragedy I'm going through is, is going to be for, for the best? What, what, what claim do they have? What basis for that claim do they have? Well, none whatsoever. It just sounds right, and it, it feels right. And let's be honest, a lot of us have, have kind of said something like that, without maybe thinking about it all that much. The Christian, though, on the other hand, compared to the unbeliever, we have every reason to make such a claim that all things will work out and it will be okay, but sometimes we make that claim just as thoughtlessly as others. So I am not wanting, I'm setting the stage here and I'm hoping that you're not hearing me say, um, use this well-known verse less often. No, I want you to use it more often. I want to use it more often, more earnestly, more meaningfully. This verse, as one commentator says, Robert Haldane, has within it a truth affording the highest consolation. I want that consolation. I don't know about you, but I want it. And I hope that tonight we can get to that truth that affords such a consolation. So we're going to give this verse the consideration it deserves. Uh, we have five points tonight. That's right. Preachers can do more than three. It's allowed. Five points tonight. And we're really just going to walk through the uh, phrases within this verse. Uh, there's actually five two-word phrases that are very helpful in kind of unpacking what's happening here. Um, and so we're going to look at those two-word phrases. And I'm following actually the order of the King James Version. Maybe a lot of you have it memorized, um, uh, uh, this verse memorized to that version. So we're going to look at first, we know, that's the first phrase, all things work together for good for them. That's how the King James structures the verse, and we're going to look at it in that order. So first, notice that Paul opens this grand promise with a declaration. We know. We know. The content of this verse is something the Christian knows, 
uh, with a firm conviction. It is not a bare wish. It's not a timid conjecture. It's not an earthly hope. We know all things will work for good. And it's interesting because if you look up there in verse uh, 26, I think it is, uh, Paul just says something that there's something that we don't know. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray the way that we ought to pray. That's because we don't know God's will perfectly. If we knew God's will perfectly and we're supposed to pray according to his will, we could always pray the way we're supposed to pray. But here we learn that even while we might puzzle over the details of God's plan in our lives, we are still entirely convinced of how that plan will play out in the end. So even if I don't know what to pray for, I know where it's all going. I know where it's going to end. All things will work out for our good. Now, how do we know this? It's not necessarily because we've experienced it, right? We, we go through difficult things in life. It's, we don't say all things work together for good because I've only experienced good things in my life. Um, sometimes our experience tells us the exact opposite of this verse. So rather, this is a conclusion that one draws, that one draws not by sight, but by faith, we could say, by faith. It's because we believe in God that we say all things will work out for good because his character demands that sort of conclusion. Have, ever, have you ever thought about it like that? The nature of God demands the conclusion that all things will work out for good. He is good and he does good, the psalmist says. And therefore, a reality in which all things do not lend towards good do not tend towards good would be a failure on his part. The world was created in goodness. He says it over and over again. He saw it. It was good. It was good. It was good. He creates the world in goodness. He will consummate the world in goodness. All things will work out for good because of God's character. And we who know God can say, we know all things will work out. We know it because we know him. And we know how much he loves us. This is another reason we can say, we know. This is another reason, because of the love that he has for his people. Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, 22. Turn there with me. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. In the opening there of that epistle, Paul writes this. Verse 22, he's talking about Christ, uh, that he was, that God raised him from the dead. And this is in verse 20. And seated him at his right hand, verse 21, above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, verse 22, and he, God, the father, put all things under his, Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church. But I believe the NIV has the better translation, which says that he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things for the sake of the church. Why is Christ ruling and reigning now over all things? For us, for our benefit. He rules over all for the church because of how God loves his people. Christ has a decided preference for his church in all of his work, in all of his work, and in all of his designs. God has a preference for his church. And so that's why second, we can say that all things will work for good. Not some things, but all things. Now, on the one hand, we need to acknowledge, I think that this is a sobering statement because what Paul is implying here 
uh, is that the Christian's experience is really no different than, than the non-Christian's experience. All things means that the same things happen to the believer that happen to the unbeliever. Now, there's a brand of preaching, it's complete lies, by the way, that will say that's not true. It will say that there are certain things that should not happen to Christians, right? And if you believe hard enough, and if you pray hard enough, but especially if you send a check to the address at the bottom of your screen, certain things won't happen to you. You're not going to get sick. You won't lose your job. You won't go through... Um, uh, financial hardship or relational strife. That's not what Paul is saying. All things could happen to you. Yes, the Christian will undergo the entire gamut of experience in life, including, as Paul is going to say in just a few verses, uh, you know this from the conclusion of Romans 8.28, including the Christian goes through tribulation, distress, danger, nakedness, sword, famine. The Christian experiences it all. The Christian circumstances are not better than anybody else's just because they happen to be Christian. So the phrase all things is sobering. But what it also means is that there's not a single circumstance in our life that is ultimately wasted. There's nothing that's wasted. Can you say that about your life uh, in terms of how you use materials and resources and your time? Do you ever waste anything? I have three shelves in my garage that are filled with scrap wood from various projects that I've done, woodworking projects. And what are these? These are pieces that I bought and I didn't need. Uh, things that are, that are left over after making cuts. Uh, a lot of them botched cuts. And okay, so I throw it up on the shelf. I'll use it for something else uh, later. Uh, God doesn't have a shelf of mess-ups, right? He, he doesn't have this, I didn't need this yet, and maybe I'll use it later, but I'm not sure. He uses everything. He wastes nothing. John Newton is the one who captured that the best when he wrote in a letter to a friend, all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. He doesn't waste anything. All things work together. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. When Paul says all things are used by God, he's saying God knows exactly what he's doing with every part of your life. Even the parts of your life right now, you're thinking, I don't need this. I do, I do not need this right now in my life. You're not going to look back in the final analysis on the hard parts the difficult parts, the distressing parts, the heartbreaking times of your life, and say, you know, I didn't really need that. All things means every situation you encounter is useful. And so if you think about it, in an ultimate sense, nothing bad can happen to the Christian. Isn't that amazing? Nothing bad can happen to us. For the Christian, the best things that happen to you in life and even the worst things that happen to you in life are all driving to the same end. You're good. And the reason that both the good things in life and the bad things in life are driving to that same end is because they all work together. This is our third second or third two-word phrase, if you're keeping up, right? We know all things work together. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word behind it is actually where we get our English word synergy, if that kind of helps you conceptualize the point. It's that 
idea of a variety of disparate or disconnected uh, things coming together and they produce something that's unified, something that's harmonious, something that's complete, uh, something even greater than the sum of their separate effects. I think that uh, maybe pharmaceuticals is a good example. You know, you have various chemicals that on their own uh, might not be able to do anything or maybe um, they can actually do something harmful on their own, but when they're blended together at just the right degrees, um, at the right levels, they can have great health benefits for us. So too, in our life, whether we deem a circumstance to be particularly good or, or enjoyable or not, we learn here there's this harmony, there's a blend. We could say it's a concert of everything coming together that that lends to our or leads to our good. That means that troubles don't negate joys, persecutions don't negate peace, grief and and loss don't cancel out the effects of blessings and happiness. They all work together. They're not contradicting each other. They're cooperating. They're all joining together for this great purpose. And that great purpose is your good. Now, how can that be? How can these things, which are so different, you know, um, uh, heartbreaking loss and then and then kind of like mountaintop joys, how can both of these things be actually working together when they seem so different? And the answer is because God is the one who is working all things together. God's orchestrating this concert. All things work together for good, but that's only because God is the one who's working all things. This working together, this synergy, it's a word about God's providence. I love the doctrine of providence. Every Christian should love the doctrine of providence, which says that, that nothing's a mistake. God's in charge of everything. He's orchestrating everything. There's no chance. There's no fate. But there's divine sovereignty that controls it all. And so the NIV, to draw this point out better, translates God as the subject uh, rather of, as the subject of the verb rather than all things. So, so it looks, or it would read like this. And we know that in all things, God works for good, for the good of those who love him. Maybe some of you have the NIV. So it puts God as the subject. Grammatically, either option is possible. The ESV has all things. It says, we know that all things work together. And the NIV says, God works all things. Grammatically, either option, it, it works. Theologically, only the NIV's option works. Theologically, this is the preferred option. God is the one working all things for good. It's a verse that affirms God's hand in every single event of our lives. God's the one blending or, or mixing, as it were, all the various ingredients uh, of our life to produce a final result that's exactly what we need. Sometimes it feels like our lives, in our lives, we're caught in a battle between good and evil. Sometimes we view life like this. When sin and suffering strike, we say, well, evil scored a point, and that's one for team Satan. And then when a blessing comes or a prayer is answered, we say, well, that's one for team God. Romans 8.28 has to um, dispel you of that perspective. We're learning here that God is orchestrating all of it. What we see as good and even what we consider to be bad all come from him. Uh, it was Augustine who made the, the observation that Job's famous line in Job chapter 1 was not, the Lord gives and the devil takes away. It's the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's providence. 
And as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, God's providence teaches us that everything in life, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, as we move along and we look at our next two-word phrase, which is kind of the center of it, for good, all things are working for good. I want us to slow down a little bit here because I think this is where we are most apt to misinterpret the verse or uh, to disbelieve the promise altogether. We misinterpret it when we don't understand what good means, right? When it says all things work for good, it doesn't mean all things work out the way you and I want them to, okay? God's good is not your good. God's good is gooder than your good. That was an intentional grammatical error. Don't, don't go back and say, that guy doesn't even know how to speak English, okay? You'll remember this. God's good is gooder than your good. Uh, so we misinterpret it if we think that um, uh, all things working out for my good means it will happen the way I want it, in the timetable I want it, or in a way that makes sense to me. The good of Romans 8.28 is greater than the good you and I come up with because it's actually referring to glory. Did you know that? That's what it's referring to. Uh, I think I think we can see that in the remainder of that uh, of this section in Romans 8, if you're still open there, look look at the verse again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then Paul goes on to talk about that purpose, what it means to be called uh, in that sense. Uh, Paul says all things work out for good for those who are called. And what happens for those who are called? They are ultimately, verse 30 says, glorified. They're glorified. Until then, they're conformed to the image of the Son of God. So in other words, um, the good that God has in mind for us is a good that leads to our sanctification and then ultimately our glorification. And that's not something you and I can conjure up on our own. So we can misinterpret it if we don't know what, what God means here or what Paul means when he says good. But we could also disbelieve the promise here. Um, when we think, well, is there really any truth to this claim that all things work for good or does it just sound nice? Is this just kind of a hallmarkism? Uh, how is it that all things, even the worst things, can work out for good? Uh, maybe, let me say very soberly, maybe you've been in a point in your life where you've kind of held a fist to heaven and you've said to God, where's the good in this? Maybe you've lost a spouse or you got a, a, a cancer diagnosis or a, a child walked away from the faith. Um, or a sudden job, job loss, and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet, and, and, you, and you just say to God, what are you doing? And, 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 and somebody maybe points this, this verse out to you, or it's even in the back of your mind, and you say, don't give me that Romans 8.28 nonsense, because that's what it is. Maybe you've had that kind of moment where you've disbelieved the promise entirely. So, how can we see that God does truly work all things for good. I'm going to assume that you don't need to be convinced that good things work for good, but I do want to take a minute here and kind of walk through how some of the bad things in life, some of the worst things in life can actually, do actually work for our good. So let's ask a question. Can bad things work for our good? Can sin, can affliction, can loss, can death work for our good? What about sin? Can sin ever be used for our good? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sin is not good, but God overrules the evil of sin for the good of his people every single day. 
And for the godly, a sense of our own sin actually draws us closer to Christ. That's a good thing. Our sin makes us more humble. We see how needy we really are. Our sin makes us more grateful. We think of the tremendous cost that it took to win us from the curse of sin. Now, of course, that means we don't run headfirst into sin. Paul says that in Romans 6. But it does mean if we found that we've fallen into sin, we don't need to despair. We can take heart. We haven't ruined our lives. If you're a Christian, it's impossible for your sin to ruin your life when your God is telling you, yes, even your sin, I'm going to work for your good. God uses our sins as a means of comforting and even converting other people. Do you remember Paul's conclusion about his life, his former life? It says the saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I'm the worst of the worst. We know that verse. We love that verse. Do you remember the next verse? This is 1 Timothy 1.15. Do you remember verse 16? What Paul says right after that? Christ came in the world to save sinners. I'm the worst sinner. And then he says this. He says, he did this. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, God saved me, a wretch, so that other people would look at me and go, well, if he could save him, maybe he can save me. Paul's sin of persecuting the church of Christ was used for good. Sin is used for good. What about affliction? Can God use our affliction? Can he use suffering and hardship? Can he use our trials? Well, again, for the Christian, always, always, always. Afflictions conform us to Christ, who himself was called the man of sorrows. Afflictions wean us off of this world and make us long for heaven, where there'll be no pain, no suffering, no tears. If it wasn't for afflictions, we'd go through life thinking we had it all made. It's all good. I don't need God. That's why David says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. That's a marvelous verse. That's one worth reflecting on maybe this week. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Moreover, the afflictions that God sends are often the instruments of our deliverance from even greater trouble. Let me say that one more time. The afflictions that God sends are often the instruments of our deliverance from greater troubles. What do I mean by that? Well, Joseph's desertion by his brothers was surely an affliction but it led not only to his advancement to the top of Egyptian society, but it actually led to his rescue of his family from the brink of starvation. And it's in that context that we are given the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28 in Genesis 50, when he says, um, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. The thing about Esther's time in captivity was used to preserve the, the entire nation. Paul and Silas were afflicted and were in prison, but their imprisonment led to the jailer's conversion and their relief. Can you uh, release? Can you say that your afflictions are good or used for good? It was Betsy Ten Boom who, um, in an attempt to give thanks in all circumstances, uh, prayed in the Ravensbrook concentration camp. Lord, thank you. This is in Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. Maybe you remember it. Lord, thank you for. Does anybody know the fleas? Thank you for the fleas. Her sister Corey thought that took things too far. That's a little too much. Uh, but days later, she realized, Corey realized how right her sister was because the girls noticed they essentially had zero supervision in their barracks. 
in their dormitory, which allowed for the freedom to have Bible studies with the other women. And the reason was that the guards didn't want to get the fleas. And so Corey writes in the book, I remembered Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. God works all things for good, even fleas, even affliction. What about loss? Can he use loss? Grief, sadness. Yes, God uses even these for good. Think of rock bottom conversions, right? People lose everything. And it's at that moment they finally look up and they see a savior ready to rescue them. My dad's testimony is proof of this. Uh, when he was only 11 years old, uh, his father, my grandfather, uh, died in a car accident, leaving my grandma to uh, raise four kids on her own. She did for several years until um, she met Don and married Don. My grandmother was not a kind woman. And uh, my dad remembers just aching for his father. Uh, who would, who used to play catch with him, and and um, they could have fun together. Where his mom put him down all the time. She marries Don. Don's not much better. But Don got my dad a job at a convenience store, and at that convenience store, he met Dane Emmerich. Dane Emmerich shared the gospel with him. My dad became converted. Now, what's that mean? Well, it means years later, my dad can look back and and can say. In all honesty, with all earnestness, he can say, he means it, he believes it, that God used the worst moment of his life, the loss of his earthly father, to set off a chain reaction that would lead to him meeting his heavenly father, from whom he'll never be separated. God uses even grief and loss. God will use sad and hard, th hard things to save people from their sin. And I want you to know that it, when it comes to hell, there is no experience in life that would be so bad that it would not in the end be worth going through if it meant it got you out of damnation. At PCA Church in Pittsburgh, um, I was uh, preaching at just last weekend. We were visiting my sister and uh, she goes to um, the PCA Church in Hopewell. Hopewell. Their pastor there is Jared Nelson. Um, but their free, uh, previous pastor years ago, over a decade ago, was dying from pancreatic cancer, beloved minister in that congregation, a young, a relatively young man. And so they were holding a benefit concert to raise some funds for his um, medical costs and things like that. And his concert or his response to the concert was simply this. If just one person were to give their life to Christ at this fundraiser, then this sickness would have been worth it. Does God use grief? Does he use loss? Yes, he does. And since he does, then we need to take Spurgeon's advice. We need to learn to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Well, finally, what about death? Death is not a good thing. In fact, death is the worst thing there is. Death is the undeniable reality of the infiltration of sin into God's world. Can death be used for good? For the Christian, yes, death is turned upside down for the Christian. Death, which is the worst thing to happen to humanity, is actually the best thing that will ever happen to you if you're in Christ. Do you know that? I mean, even as I say it, it sounds wrong to me. 
but you have to think about, no, that, that must be true. That death, the worst thing in this life for me, will be the best thing about this life because it brings me to my Savior. Death is, is utterly transformed. Uh, George Herbert, the uh, great uh, British poet back in the 1600s, he said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. What does he mean by that? He's talking about how for the Christian, death is just this, this means by which we're, we're planted into the ground awaiting the resurrection. The gospel has made death a gardener. Death can only make us better. And that's because of the death of Christ. The, the most evil event to ever occur was when Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to that cross some 2,000 years ago. And God took that evil event, the most evil of evils, and turned it into the greatest good, because in his death, we now have life. Well, there's one final phrase that we want to address. I've made reference to it throughout, but we need to deal with it head on. And that is, who is this verse for? Who is this promise for? It's not for everyone, is it? It has boundaries to it. Because all things do not work out for good for everyone. What have we seen so far? We know all things work together for good for them. For them that love God. Or for those, for those who are called according to his purpose. Those are the same phrase, in essence. Those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, if you want to know if you're called by God, if you have that question today, it's, a, it's an important question for you to know the answer to. Am I called by God? Here's one of the ways you can answer it. Do you love him? Do you love him? If you love God, you're called by him. If you do not love God, though, this grand promise that we've been unpacking tonight, it's not yours. It is not for you, at least not yet. But it could be yours, and it must be. What a terribly sad condition the unbeliever is in. For the godly, the worst things in life work towards our glorification. But for the wicked, even the best things in life work towards their damnation. So, friends, don't leave this text, a familiar text. Yes, a well-known text. You might even have it memorized, but do not leave this text until it is your text. Don't leave this verse until it's your verse. Don't leave this promise until you say, it is for me. This verse is not a meaningless, they're there, it will all be okay, that just anybody can take with them. It's a declaration. It's a promise. It's a guarantee that things will be for the best if you love God. This is for those who belong body and soul to Jesus Christ and those only because to belong to Jesus, says the Heidelberg, means that he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Don't you want that to be true of you? So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Well, maybe you're... Uh, you're thinking of the things that you have to give up to follow after God. Maybe you're thinking about the sins that you'd have to leave and say goodbye to. Maybe you're thinking about the people who will abandon you if you make your life's mission loving God. 
But don't you see, this promise has an answer to all those what ifs already. Because it says all things will work for good. Well, if I become a Christian, what if this happens to me? That's okay. It's going to work out for your good. What if my friends leave me? It will work out for your good. What if I get persecuted? It will work out for your good. What if I lose my job? It will work out for your good. There's an answer to those fears packed in. It packaged into this promise. This, this wonderful verse tells us you literally have nothing to lose. Nothing at all. Sin and affliction, grief, even death itself, things that would otherwise overwhelm or destroy you will now become servants of God's grace to you. And it was the Puritan, Thomas Watson, who concluded this from Romans 8.28. This is what he says. He says, Romans 28 is an encouragement to become godly. He says, all things shall work for good. Oh, that this may induce the world to fall in love with religion. Can there be a greater magnet to piety? What's he talking about? How could this make us want to be more religious, more pious, more holy? Because for those who love God, for those who follow after God, and those only, all things work together for good. He's saying this is the, this is the greatest magnet to draw you away from that sin that you haven't been able to kick yet. Those habits you haven't been able to let go yet. Oh, that this may induce the world to fall in love with religion. Can there be a greater magnet to piety? Can anything more prevail with us to be good than this? All things shall work for our good. And so, dear friends, I implore you, do not leave this text until it is your text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for gospel promises and for the grand promise of Romans 8, 28. And yet it is very clear it is not for everyone. It's a great, great promise for the believer. I pray that uh, we would believe on that promise tonight, that there would be nobody who would walk out the door unable to say, this promise is my promise. Thank you, Father, for your kind providence, which does take all of the difficulties of this life and works them together, even with the greatest of joys, to our ultimate good, indeed, even our glorification. And since you are so good to us, how can we not render goodness in return? So give us lives of holiness and piety and obedience. Would we follow fully after you, for you are deserving of this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.